Welcome to April's Renatus podcast. One of the most accomplished business leaders in Ireland, Roisin McGuckigan, joins Renatus advisor and investor Greg Dilger for a very informative chat. We hope you enjoy it. I'm delighted to be joined today by Roisin McGuckian, the CEO of Irish renewable energy company NTR. Many of us will remember NTR as the builders of Ireland's first toll bridge back in the late 1970s, but they have evolved considerably since then. So, Roshin, uh, before you tell us about the business and your exciting plans, I think it would be useful if you gave us a very quick history of NTR from the beginning to where we are today. Thanks, Greg. Yes, um, NTR was actually set up about 40 years ago by the grandfather of the family, the Roach family, that own uh, almost all of the business today. And NTR stands for National Toll Roads. Now, people in Ireland know that, but most of our customers and our clients overseas would not know that. They think it's got something to do with renewables. But we were set up originally to build the first toll bridge uh, to cross the River Liffey in Dublin. And we expanded into many other roads and many other areas of infrastructure over the next 40 years or so. But we first got into renewable energy just over 20 years ago. Uh, by investing through the brand Airtricity here in Ireland, and which also expanded into the US. And over two investment cycles up until 2015, we expanded to well over sort of one and a half gigawatts, coming up to two gigawatts of wind and solar around Europe and the US. Did some very successful exits out of that. And since 2015, we've been focusing all Europe, all renewables since then, under a different strategy, which I'm sure you're going to ask me a little bit more about in a second. Um, bringing us up to today where we're now a specialist renewables investor, uh, a, a business that constructs, operates wind, solar, battery storage around six countries around Europe. Well, it's, I come from a financial services background and when I started to look at NTR recently again before I did this chat, I'm, I'm seeing you as a very similar to a fund manager as I would have uh, known them over the years, except you're not buying equities and bonds and uh, stuff like that. You're specializing in uh, sustainable infrastructure, I guess is what, is that how, what you would call the asset class? Sustainable infrastructure? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's infrastructure that's, we're in there for the long haul. It's critical infrastructure, but it's also in the renewables, the green climate change and energy transition space. And would it be fair to say, uh, Rashin, that your core business is your funds business where you take in uh, investors' money and invested on their behalf. Is that your core business now? Yes. I mean, we also invest our own capital um, mm. alongside the funds that we set up. But yes, absolutely. Mm. Since 2015, it was a change in strategy where we said, look, we don't just want to uh, invest our own balance sheet. We also want to take in institutional capital. And so we have uh, already got two large um, renewable energy funds under our belt, and we're currently on our third Mm. Um, and yeah, that's it. We are an asset manager, except the asset class is renewable energy. Renewable energy. And as a matter of interest, it, it, the fund management companies that I'm familiar with would commonly have what they call an AUM to, as a sort of indicator of their size and scale. Do you talk about your AUM? Is that a number that? Yeah, we do, but we tend to talk in terms of total capital deployed. So we've over a billion euros invested into about 50 locations around Europe. Okay. Okay. Uh, now, the sort of investors that invest in your funds, uh, tell me about who they would be and what, why they're investing in this asset class. What's the attraction of it for them? The type of investors that are attracted to this class are 
pension funds, insurance companies, other large institutional clients who typically have long-term liabilities that they want to get very attractive, sustainable cash yields to offset over the longer period of time. Mm. Um, our funds um, can range anything from 10 years up to 30 years. And so it's all about um, ensuring that they have this sustainable cash yield rather than sort of in and out. Uh, you know, we're very much a design, build, operate and hold for a long mm. period of time type um, investor. So a lot of funds, again, the ones that I would be familiar with, would have many would have daily pricing and all of that kind of thing, and people can come in and out. Like clearly, there is no liquidity in your funds. These are when you're in, you're in for the long haul. They're called closed end funds. Exactly. Closed end funds. So you come in, you're buying into assets. You'll be updated once a quarter as to how your your okay. assets are performing, but absolutely, it's uh, it's not a daily pricing whatsoever. Mm. And and Roshin, how do how do the investors again? I sound very short term in my thinking, but they're putting money in. How do they actually make their return? Tell me about how the return comes back to them. Is it a gradual thing like private equity, or do they just dispose of all the assets at a certain point in time and give them the money back, or dividends, or a mixture of both? It's really a mixture of both. So if you take your classic ten or twelve year fund, and and in fairness, the infrastructure class tends to be. A little bit longer than private equity so it could be 10 mm. up to 15 years typically and what you do is for the first couple of years you're investing and you'll be constructing so you might buy some operational assets to immediately throw off yield but during that construction period um you know your yield will be lower and then you get into a steady state for the next five to six years whereby you've got these really nice attractive reliable sustainable yields six to eight percent net mm. to the investor so they they enjoy that and then at the end of that period of time um if it's a 10 or a 12 year fund you'll then dispose of the assets and then you'll get you know obviously an uplift from that mm. our other funds um as it's our first two funds that would be longer term again so effectively they're holding on to the assets right the way through to the okay. the end of the their asset life um, moving on to the other side of your sort of non-core side, the sort of once-off projects side, how tell me how that could happen. Clearly, you're investing in 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 this this asset class. You're doing it for the funds primarily, but presumably an investor uh, might ask you to do something specific for them, and that can work well with the others. Is that the sort of thing that happens? Yes. Yeah, so um, the fund, the core fund business, what you call blind funds. In yep. other words, the investors are. Uh, providing a, a you know a set of money for us and say please go find assets within a particular type mm. of class and we do that and then they're relying on our expertise to make the right investment choices and to run these assets properly on their behalf the other approach that you're talking about um sometimes called a strategic managed account mm. might be where we might find a really good opportunity and we say look we think this will really benefit x um investor and we'll go, we'll tell them about it. And they might say, yes, please do invest on our behalf and then build it and run it on our behalf. Okay. Or indeed the other way around, whereas you say there might be some investors who say, look, I kind of like this, that and the other. If you see it, tell us about it and we'd be interested yeah, yeah. In, in supporting you. And you can price up those transactions based on the work involved and on whatever commercial basis that clearly has to suit. Absolutely. The, the, the I mean, look, what they're getting is access to our investment expertise, mm. our engineering yeah. expertise. So we're able to identify areas to optimize the design of the projects, 
to get them built on time safely and on budget and mm. then obviously to run them and optimize on their behalf so yes we charge a fee for that okay. that's exactly the thing but they're they're buying into that expertise to get those lovely yields we've been talking and about. in in general going back to your core business uh just taking the analogy of the the regular funds uh, uh they the the business model there would be a percentage of of the overall assets and that goes to the manager how do you manage the fee or organize the fee when you don't have a sort of the pricing flexibility or the pricing transparency that the regular asset managers would have with equities and bonds typically in in our class infrastructure class it's not necessarily a percentage of the asset it's it's a percentage of the capital that's deployed so you say look okay. if you're going to okay. give 100 million let's say we'll charge yeah. a fee as a percentage of that and then, of course, obviously, obviously, there'll be performance and so on as well. But in okay. terms of the core, please, you know, cover our costs and, uh, you know, make money. That's the way it works. Yeah. And and your your pitch to investors, Rashin, what you know, you've probably made it a zillion times. You could close your eyes and say it. What 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 is in a minute or so? What's your pitch to them? What why are you different? Why are you better than others? Yeah, we, we talk about our secret sauce, and that secret sauce is the engineering DNA and mindset mm. of NTR. So we come from a world where, as I mentioned you know, a few minutes ago, we started as a developer of roads and an engineering business with entrepreneurship, mm. and that's what we apply to renewable energy. So what investors get through us are people who've been at this for 20 years, who understand the whole mm. concept of energy production inside out, and who can find the right assets and optimize those assets in their behalf. And that's what we're continuously told by mm. the investors who back us. It's all about the that secret sauce, the engineering DNA. Mm. Very good. Um, moving on, rushing to your um, your locations and your, you know, you're, you're clearly an Irish company and you operate in Ireland, but I think considerably more, uh, you've considerably more operations and, and investments around Europe and Europe continues to be sort of your your main focus. Maybe tell us a little bit about the the landscape in Europe at the moment as to countries that are you, you like, perhaps countries that are difficult, and maybe and, and reflect on Ireland as well and where we fit in to all of that, just sure. in sort of general terms. Yeah. Well, look, I think first of all, just to say, why are we in Europe and not in other continents? Mm. And that's because uh, we all know about the climate change, the emergency. We all know about what we call energy transition. And so Europe is very clearly saying from a policy point of view that we've got to up our game in terms of decarbonization. Mm. So at the moment, in general, across Europe, about 35 percent of energy consumed comes from renewable energy. And the intention by Europe is to get that up to, you know, 40 to 55 percent and indeed 60 percent of electricity consumption. Now, if you take that landscape around Europe, each country approaches in a slightly different way. But the overall policy is to put government supports in place to ensure that we accelerate our deployment of core technologies like mm. wind, solar and some nascent technologies such as hydrogen or indeed battery storage is also another area. You're kind of asking me, though, like, where's, where's our stomping ground? And our yeah. stomping ground at the moment, um, we're in the Nordics. So we're in Sweden and Finland. We're in France. We're in Italy, UK and Ireland. Mm. And we chose those markets on the basis of a number of factors. One is that the governments locally 
are, you know, that what is their policy? What are the frameworks they put in place to support that accelerated growth? And is there enough growth for us to add? You know, we, it's all about impact and we want to be additive. Hmm. The second area um, relates to grid. That is a huge part of, of any assessment that we make of any market. Do we believe the grid can sustain the level of growth mm. that the policy of that government is? And um, some markets are better than others in terms mm. of that. Um, and then thirdly, it's just plain old energy resource. So, you know, it's very windy in Ireland and Scotland mm. and parts of Sweden, and it is very sunny in parts of Italy. And indeed, mm. let's even take southern UK. So you just look at sort of the core factors, mm. work out the need, and that's kind of where we assess where we want to be. Roshin, um, just want to talk planning delays. Uh, you know, we heard about planning delays in Ireland with regard to property and regular developments and housing and all that. And I know it's an issue in your world as well. And I know you don't want to get up on the soapbox you're giving out about anybody, but what what, what can we do? Oh, sorry, just to go back, I presume since COP26 and indeed since the Russian situation in, in Ukraine, that, you know, all of these this has become even more important, the, the issues you're talking about, more important. And we've got to get things done quicker and more efficiently. And is there anything we can do on the planning side here, anything anything we can sort of to dramatically change the, the landscape? Like could we, for example, um, and I know nothing about this this topic, but in the way that, that compulsory purchase happens for roads, developments, and that to speed things up, is there an equivalent of that that could happen in, in, in your world? It does exist in our world. Does it? Certain does it? Yeah. So no, absolutely. If yeah. you take, for example, I'm not talking about the projects themselves, but the grid, the access to the grid, mm. um, it can take place. I'm talking about other markets, actually. It's not, sorry, in theory, it could happen in Republic of Ireland, but in practice, it doesn't happen. Mm. Uh, in other markets, it does happen. Mm. So if, for example, it is deemed that there is a strategic need in order to make that connection, um, the municipalities and indeed at, at a sort of a federal level as well, the, the opportunity is there to do that sort of thing. Mm. But you don't want to be in that place. You know, that's kind of the last, yeah. you know, last yeah. chance saloon. Really where you want to be is uh, from a planning perspective, you want to be able to have proper consultation. You want to be able to ensure that people's voices and concerns are heard yeah. and that you can still build at the end of the day, if the project is correct and should mm. be built. And I think in some of the um, jurisdictions around Europe, unfortunately, the needle has gone a little bit too much towards the ability for anybody to object and hold projects to ransom for as long as they want, mm. um, rather than actually looking at the common good and saying, are these concerns genuine? Um, do, will they actually have an impact? Are there ways to mitigate those impacts to enable this much needed um, renewable energy that we, look, we need it? We all mm. know we need it. Um, how do we ensure that we can actually get them built in, mm. in the longer term? Like, How big a frustration is it for you, for you guys, for NTR in general? Is it this is a constant, I guess? Well, we get on with it. Yeah. Um, I think as an industry, um, it can be frustrating if there are certain times and periods when you're effectively being held to ransom mm. when it's not necessarily for the common good. Mm. As I understand it, Rushing, we've only one offshore um, wind farm in Ireland. I might be wrong. That's the the, the, the Wicklow one. Arklow Bay, uh, yeah. Arklow Bay. We, we, we hear a lot about offshore and more of it. And, and, and yet 
we still only have one. What's what's the offshore scene going to look like in five and 10, 15 years time, do you think, in Ireland? I think you're looking more of a five to 10 year horizon than you are in a zero to five year horizon, unfortunately, still Mm. in Ireland, because it is a huge resource. Mm. Uh, You know, we have fantastic wind and we are surrounded by waters and we don't have a lot of land left. So, you know, it is a resource that we should be uh, um, exploiting more. Um, Look, between uh, various legislation that needs to come through, the various assessments, environmental impact surveys and so on that need to come through, and indeed the infrastructure, we need the ports, we need the infrastructure and grid to actually get the power back Mm. into the country or indeed overseas, should you decide to sell it onwards. And that's, you know, we're years away. Mm. Um, So I think it's a five to 10 year horizon in Ireland. But just look across the waters, look what they've done in the UK in the space of five years. It can be done. Mm. And we've seen it happen, you know, off the shores of the Netherlands and Germany and so on. So um, I think if we look longer term, I think we can uh, expect it to be a huge growth area for us as a Mm. country. Um, uh, But I do think we're a good five to 10 years away. And do we still... um... Do we still suffer from the sort of the public perception of hating the look of these things on the landscape? Is that is that the, is that the big issue that with the with the public they just don't like the look of them? Actually, I think, and I don't want to speak on behalf of Wind Energy Ireland, but yeah, I think yeah. they'll regularly do surveys and they'll regularly tell you that you know we're talking 90 percent of the public are totally unfavorable. Okay. in favor of this, I should say. Yes. So and look, it's not the community hates wind. That is not okay. at all um, the, the impact. And, and genuinely, I would say to you, I mean, I said we're in 50 locations mm. um, around Europe and we have communities who um, uh, are very supportive mm. and they benefit from, you know, economically and socially from mm. these projects within their neighborhoods. Mm. And in many, many instances, the community, you know, with, with open arms are saying that we want this in our mm. area because we yeah. have to benefit from it. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I wouldn't overplay the negativity. Okay. Yeah. You know, there's work to be done to work with others, but, but as a whole, the community is supportive. And what about onshore in Ireland now? What's the sort of the same question really for onshore? How's that looking? Uh, will we, will, it, will that move on considerably, do you think? Or will there be similar issues holding that back? So onshore wind in Ireland, like all countries in Europe, is going to be the principal growth area of renewable energy for the next five years. Hmm. Um, Yes, solar will catch up, but just in terms of the megawatts installed that you can achieve for solar, it's not as large as you would have for onshore. So it is the core growth right across Europe, uh, offshore catching up. Solar, obviously, continuing to grow, but just the efficiencies you get from solar wouldn't be as high as you would for wind. And solar really was a third, just the third one in that. Where where yeah. where will that be in your portfolio in terms of it's, of it's scale substantial. Of, substantial. Yeah, it's substantial. I would say about twenty-five to thirty percent of our portfolio will be solar. In solar. And yeah. as a, will that be focused initially and and sort of Spain and those very warm regions, or will it be will it be that Ireland, for example? Plus Ireland. We we are building solar and battery here in Ireland and we are building in the UK and we have solar assets already in the UK. It's very different. I know we tend to think as it was five or six years ago where we say, look, you need to be in a sunny clime to make this work. But actually the technology has moved on. It works. Yeah. Yeah. Do, do just going back to the planning theme, do people get upset with solar farms in their fields around the country? Does that cause less? uh, Well, it, it has less 
visual impact. Yes, impact, obviously. yeah. Um, so I think, and, and often you would find solar farms would be behind hedgerows and so on, so you wouldn't okay. necessarily okay. see them. So no, it doesn't create the same, I suppose, visual concerns okay. the community would have. But, but as with any infrastructure, you've always got to take into consideration um, everything from, you know, the period of construction right the way through to operations and, and what that will mean for the community. And when you talk of storage, I'm uh, clearly in, in the context of wind, you're, there are times when the wind blows a lot and there's a lot of power created. Uh, presumably the storage piece that you talk about is to take this ex- excess, store it for a time when the wind isn't blowing so much. Is that the essence of the of the, your that's your... part of it so the mm. battery storage plays two roles when it comes to renewables the first is what you're talking about is called capacity in other words as you say once the wind stops can you release some of that power that you've created onto the grid at, at mm. other times but the second is what you call grid services it's it's um firming services so one of the aspects of renewable energy is it's it's variable and, you know, let's take, for example, if you've got solar and a cloud goes in front of the sun for a second, mm. it will have an immediate impact in the grid. So the grid companies need you to be immediately able to offset this through means okay. other than relying on what they call baseload gas and so on. And so, again, battery storage plays mm. a role in that where it can immediately kick in and firm up the grid on, on your behalf. And would you expect that that battery uh, part will be a significant part of your portfolio going forward? It'll be similar, slightly less than solar. I reckon it'll be about a 10 to 15 percent of our portfolio. It's fascinating here. I'm getting a sort of nearly an MBA from you in an hour, but or less than an hour. Um, Roshin, your team in NTR, give you some sense of the numbers you have working there and indeed the others, non-NTR employees who are part of your team effectively. Yeah, I mean, look, it's interesting, Greg. When I joined NTR, we had couple of thousand employees you know we had mm. waste management businesses and so on so we were very labor intensive and today we are down to 35 people so it's a completely different type of business mm. very highly skilled specialized people i hasten to add um but we have very much an outsource model so we use you know we have the strategic capacity in-house when it comes to investing and when mm. we do for example the construction and the operations but at any given time we could have a couple of hundred people working for us on an outsource basis. And that would be people who are doing the operations and maintenance for us, who are doing major construction sites and so on, um, or indeed technical due diligence. So mm. it's very much a small team, but with big impact, both from an employment point mm. of view and investment point of view around Europe. And as a matter of interest, how did that small team and community get on during COVID and all the difficulties presented by that? Did they yeah, manage okay? Well, we managed okay mm-hmm. um we're very fortunate that from an, a sector point of view we are critical infrastructure so you know the lights have to stay on so you know we we you know from a business point of view it was as busy as it ever has been mm-hmm. um you know like every other business we were working remotely a number of our team members actually live in countries around europe anyway so mm-hmm. it's, we're always working remotely um but look like every business it just has its additional challenges i suppose just to kind of keep morale going mm. keep people you know uh, you know it's, coming to work every day isn't just about transactions it's about mm. fun it's about you know why we're coming to work relationships exactly mm. but we're back now we're back in the office delighted yeah. to say and uh, and people are doing really well um I, I have a note here just to ask you about culture I, I have a big thing about culture myself and everything and i think people are often frown at it and think it's a bit fluffy and kind of silly stuff but i think it's massively important 
uh, and it, it, you know, it's the combination of lots of things. But you know, if you were to describe the sort of culture of NTR, I think I know what you're going to say. But uh, the culture of NTR, sort of in a, in a paragraph, what, how would you mm. how would you do that? Well, actually, um, one of the first things I would say to you is sort of a, a, a core living value that we breathe is about entrepreneurship, and that comes right from the very early days when. Tom Roach Sr., who uh, first of all set up NTR to make that bridge. Mm. Um, that's just been sort of what NTR has always been about. We are entrepreneurial. It's a small team. It's a team that works hard and plays hard. So it's good mm. fun. That's a yeah. very important part of what we do. It's very informal, but it's, we're always striving for excellence. Mm. You know, we, we've got, as I said, very specialist people who are at the pinnacle of, of what yeah. they do. And that's kind of what keeps us going. And Tom is a little bit of a legend. He's a very low profile guy, obviously, but is he still very active in the business as chairman? Yes. Yes. Tom Roach, who's actually the son of the the founder of the business, is still yeah. chairman and still very, very active, as are some of his family members on our board. Okay. Okay. Roshin, um, I'm well aware that you come from a, a, a bit of a dynasty, uh, the McGuckin dynasty up in the north of Ireland. And even I remember Alistair and Paddy doing their stuff in Mastock and, and, you know, there probably weren't that many Irish businesses who were doing international stuff back then. And they were, uh, remember them, they were in Africa, certainly in the Middle East. And, and uh, do you think that sort of family background, again, I, I'm guessing the answer to this, but, you know, at your Sunday dinners and whatever, you're, you've been sort of um, given a sort of a great business training and that from them that has that has helped you a lot in your career and even what you're doing now do you, would you attribute a lot of your your stuff to what you learned when you were a kid even though you didn't realize you were learning it well like i definitely say we didn't realize it when i was a kid absolutely it is the yeah. last thing you want to be doing is you know yes. talking to your dad about business but yeah look absolutely i guess what um has definitely um, what, what I've definitely absorbed is that natural inclination, that curiosity about other countries, other opportunities, uh, what's out there. Mm. Um, definitely, you know, we like to try and think big, but you also don't want to be too risky. Uh, I suppose that's kind of, you know, one of the core things you learn again when you see people who've actually set up businesses, been through the cycles of business, you, you know, mm. you realize it's not always, it doesn't always go your way. So you've got to be able to, you know, enjoy the good times, but also be prepared mm. for the bad times. So yeah, there's a lot definitely that I would have picked up from from home, uh, not necessarily the Sunday dinners, but from home, all right, <laughs> to bring back into the workplace. And I'm just sort of looking at your your career. It's, you know, it's an unusual kind of career. You know, I don't know what quite you set out to do. Probably like many of us, you, you never knew really what you wanted to do. I certainly didn't. But I see, you know, you started with, with the Drury Communications and I can see how that would have prepared you for a lot. And then you went to ESP. And then it, the funny one is GE Money just appears, which is financial services, very, very different. So tell us just a little bit about that move and how that happened. And I'm sure working yeah. for GE was a huge training. I, I can only imagine it was anyway. Yeah, yeah. I guess the core thread, certainly for the first period of my working life, was all about communications and change management. And mm. um, so that was sort of what... Um, was the core service, for want of a better word, that I would have been doing through Drury Communications. And then I moved into ESB in the whole world of change management. Um, and that's how I got into GE. Um, and I was um, approached by a great guy called Dan O'Connor, who asked me to join the European team. And I was very involved in 
um, that area of communications and strategic change around Europe. Um, and then even though the, as, as you say, look, financial services isn't the same as, as, as power, but it doesn't matter mm. what sector you're in, the core um, management skills of, um, of change management and, and communications is, is core wherever you go. Um, when I was in GE, I suppose that was my opportunity the first time to be, it was the first time I was made CEO. So I got the opportunity mm. to try out for the CEO position of the Irish business um, and thankfully got the role, which was great. Um, I'm not a specialist, you know, I don't come from a banking background, but mm. I had really good specialist people around me and I just kind of brought general management and mm. you know, general strategy and that sort mm. of thing. Um, and then from there, um, I was with GE for a number of years. Absolutely, GE gives you fantastic grounding, um, yeah. a whole load of toolkit things yeah. that you can bring to other businesses. Um, I really enjoyed it. It was a multinational. That was important for me. But I did at some point want to sort of be in a business that the core decisions are being made from where I was. Yeah. So I decided to join another multinational at the time, which was NTR, but the head office happened to be Dublin rather than Connecticut. Yeah. And uh, joined there as a corporate development director and then through sort of, you know, worked in different businesses within NTR and then ultimately mm. as my CEO. Mm. As a matter of interest, was, was um, I don't want to age you now, but was Jack Welsh still there or was Jeff Immelt? He had finished. No, he, he had, had just finished. Jeff he had just finished. over at that point. It, yeah. it certainly, when I was working in, in stockbroking, uh, Jack Welsh was an absolute legend. Now, his 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 um, his uh, legacy isn't quite as good as it used to be because I think it was a pretty harsh, pretty harsh way of doing things. He used to drop the 20% weakest, that sort of uh, real tough well, stuff. That, that was yeah. still there when I was there. That was still there, yeah. <laughs> So I think I think today that would be frowned upon. It was it was kind of much admired in terms of getting you know maxing out performance and stuff, and it was seen as really good. But it's it was you know I'm not sure today that kind of thing would really work so well. The world has changed a bit since Jack Welch was in his pomp. Yeah, actually, I think one of the things um, you know that, that what you're talking about is what was called the session C process. It was one of the the processes that the GE would run. It wasn't necessarily that the 20% were out in their ear. It might be the 20% weren't thriving in the role that they were in. in. Yeah, and yeah, so it yeah, makes yeah. you think long and hard about that and say, well, actually, yeah. you know, could this person maybe if we, we were in a different role or there's another mm. way of doing this. And so actually it's quite disciplined. And I think sometimes it gets a bit of a bad press. It, yes. but it actually makes you sit down once a year and actually yeah. go, not everybody's going to be the star. Yeah. And we've got, you know, you get your the, the way that it was sort of the 10 uh, 70, 20. Yeah. Um, you've got to make sure that that 70% were equally getting an opportunity to be stars mm. and that the 20 to work with them and see what's the best for them at a personal mm. as well as a business level. I, I certainly w would doubt that you um, you regretted anything about the GE move. I'm sure you learned oceans from it. Absolutely. No, it's, yeah, and fantastic people to work with. Moving towards the end, really, and um, I just thought I'd ask you this one. I know you're on the board of a non-exec of uh, Grafton Group PLC and Cisc, two fine companies to be on the board of, might I add. So they're you know they're busy boards and and you've got stuff to do that, that nothing compared to your executive job, obviously. But I would you know I would imagine that being on those boards and listening to the strategies and the issues and all that, it's massively educational for you and useful to listen to other views and get perspectives from outside the NTR stable? 
Do you find that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's the very reason why I uh, do do the mm. non-executive directorships. And that's something I sat down with our chairman, Tom Roach, and we agreed that we said, look, there's no point in sending me off to Harvard mm. or you know some school to learn. The best place to bring in new ideas is to actually be involved in other adjacent yes. sectors yeah. and to understand what's going on. So so that's an absolute um, strategy that we've taken, which is yeah. to say, you know, no more than two now, in fairness, because yeah. I do have a day job. Yeah. But, uh, you know, to be an active member of mm. two such fine companies gives me a real opportunity to see other sectors. And it's not just me. We do this with our senior executives yeah. um, across the board. And it could be for profit or indeed not for profit. Yeah. But we actively encourage our senior executives to participate as NEDs and different boards. Um, yes, we'll bring stuff to them, but we learn so much as a business yes. from what's going on around Okay, I think that's a perfect note uh, on which to end this podcast. It's been a short, sweet and very informative chat uh, and I really enjoyed it and I'm sure the listeners of the Renatus podcast will too. Uh, thank you so much, Roshin, for taking the time out and best of luck to you and your team going forward. Thank you very much, Greg. It was uh, very enjoyable and um, if a little bit daunting, some of the questions <laughs> that you asked. <laughs> thank you very much, Roshin. That's been super.